This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 4th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The desire among some college students to shout down and intimidate campus speakers may be troubling. So what drives the desire to muzzle speech that we find offensive? Steve Simpson directs legal studies at the Ayn Rand Institute. We spoke last week. As I noted before we started recording this issue of uh, camp speakers getting shut down on college campuses, uh, people who like Charles Murray, mm-hmm. people less notable like Milo Yiannopoulos yeah. and others, and uh, Christina Hoff Summers yeah. is somebody who's, yep. who's had to deal with some of that as well, are, I'm not convinced that it's as big a problem mm-hmm. as, as some people say it is, but it is a problem, yeah. and you can see it in how people... Uh, you know, get speeches successfully get speeches shut down mm-hmm. and, and don't allow alternative viewpoints, uh, sometimes odious viewpoints, to be presented on college campuses. But I guess as as you see it, what's driving the push to say that not only is the uh, push to shut down these speakers good and right, but that it's moral? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there are a couple things going on here. Um, one issue, so there are really two issues. One is, and we can talk about this a bit, whether there is a, quote, right to free speech on campus. And the short answer to that really is no, but there's more to that. So we can we can unfold that as it goes. Um, but on the question of whether students should be shutting down talks, I mean, the best case that the opposition, the people who are protesting people like Charles Murray are making is that, I mean, number one, what they're saying is this is our right to free speech. So if if Charles Murray comes on campus, we think the guy is a racist and a white supremacist, which, by the way, is false. I mean, that's really a scandalous thing to say about Charles Murray. You can say that about a lot of people these days, right? The the alt-right, I think those guys really are um, white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Um, I don't know that Milo is, but he is a provocateur who is trying to push those buttons. But Charles Murray is not that. And it's a real, um, it, I think it's just a real libel against the guy, uh, whether you agree with the bell curve or not to call him a white supremacist. I think that's crazy. He's a real uh, you know, intellectual. But be that as it may, let's say you think that he is a white supremacist and you want to to, to protest what he has to say. You have every right to, in a proper context, say, I don't think that guy should be here, right? So if I'm a Middlebury student or a professor, I might say, look, I don't think this guy lives up to the, uh, to the intellectual standards of having people on campus. And, and I, I'm entirely sympathetic to the idea that campuses um, ought to have some intellectual standards as to whom they invite. They ought to invite serious people to, to speak. Um, and if students want to want to stage some sort of a protest, I would call it a peaceful protest that doesn't disrupt the proceedings, they have every right to do that. So, you know, they could have had a picket outside, they could have gone into the event and they could have asked them really hard questions. But what they did was they all stood up in unison, they turned their backs on them. Okay, fine. You know, Charles Murray's a big boy, he can handle people turning his backs on him. But then they chanted until he couldn't be heard and, and basically drove him out of the room. You know, then he had to go to a different room where they tried to live stream it. And then when they left, of course, he was attacked. And, uh, and Laura Stanger, um, the other professor with him, uh, was actually injured in the melee. That's way beyond the pale, right? 
So what's driving these kids to do this kind of thing? I mean, what I would put it, simply put, I would say it's identity politics. And this is, this is a big, you know, it's a mainstream kind of staple on campuses these days. Another way to put it is multiculturalism. And the idea basically is your identity, and by identity, typically it means race, sex, class, religious affiliation, ethnicity, that kind of thing, um, determines who you are. And not only determines who you are, but it really determines whether or not we can speak to or communicate with each other, right? So to, to put it in stark terms, the idea is that each of us has a unique identity that's determined by some, non, I, would, I would call it non-essential characteristic, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're black or white, whether you're Latino, whether you're Asian, et cetera. And by non-essential here, I mean non-essential to your character. So think, you know, Martin Luther King's famous dictum, uh, judge a man by the content of his character, not by the color of his skin. They're the exact opposite of that. They're sort of judge a man by the, con- by the color of his skin. And that each of us has a unique perspective based on our skin color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they take it even to the point of, hey, because I'm black and you're white, you can't understand my experience. I can't understand your experience. We really have no means of communication. There's a fundamental divide between us. And once you accept that idea and then you further it to, and we're all fragmented, society is fragmented into these groups defined by those characteristics, you get two things. One, you get no basis for communication. And two, you just get a kind of tribalism. You get people saying, I'm going to adhere to this group. You're going to adhere to that group. If we can't communicate, what's left? What's left if people can't communicate? You get a kind of balkanization. You get infighting. You get what we're, I think, seeing with the Trump presidency. And this is one of the ironies of all of this. I would say this kind of attitude really drives a guy like Trump coming into office because he's playing off of that entirely. Because one of the things you see when you, when you tell people for years and years, you're no better than your group, right? And you define that group by totally non-essential characteristics. It's not a voluntarily joined group. It's, it's a group defined by something like skin color, race, sex, et cetera. Um, and you say that uh, certain groups are the ones that should be the privileged groups in a sense, that, they're, that they've been oppressed and now we need to to uh, to to you know account for that oppression. And typically, it's you know uh, women have been oppressed, black people have been oppressed, minorities have been oppressed, Asians have been oppressed, etc. Um, and you tell people that long enough, and they come to believe it. At a certain point, you're going to get a backlash, and everybody else is going to say, "Hey, I I buy into your everybody is part of their own tribe, but guess what? I want my group to be on top." And when Donald Trump comes along and says, your group will be on top, i.e. middle class white people with no jobs, he's going to get the votes and people are going to actually vote him into office. And now you've got tribalism on a national scale. That's a scary phenomenon. I think that's driving a lot of the politics these days. Uh, but why don't I pause there and, and tell me if you want to push back or, or well, what you – because you said you didn't think that uh, this is a huge problem. And I think you're on to something there. But uh, but let's talk a bit more about that. Well, given the, the bubble that I live in, <laughs> of course I'm confronted with almost every instance of, of uh, this coming to the fore. And so uh, I'm not convinced that it's a bigger problem than – Oh well, everything I see about campuses seems to have something to do yeah. with this, and, and maybe uh, I'm, uh, I, I, I should be at least 
cautious in trying to judge this to be a bigger problem than it is. But let me push back against something else, which is if someone is black and I am white of various, I'm basically a mutt when it comes to uh, <laughs> my characteristics. So, me too. Um, it, there is a difficulty. There can be yeah. significant difficulties in communicating experiences. Mm -hmm. Communicating those things, I think, is important. But uh, the, the, the reaction seems to have been, because you and I have these very different experiences, because you can't internalize my experience, we shouldn't talk? Is that the conclusion that's that's being drawn? I think it's really close to that, yeah. And and it's, uh, I mean, really, so if you want to trace this back philosophically, you get to, uh, I think, the main um, group of thinkers responsible for what's happening today are the postmodernists. And postmodernists essentially were attacking the entire Enlightenment worldview and, and specifically attacking the whole idea of reason, objectivity, and and looking at society not as um, a system of individual rights in which we are all uh, you know permitted and protected in, in in pursuing our destiny, and we have such a thing as a rule of law. And yes, of course, it has to be um, equality before the law, which by the way we did not have for a long time in this country. So no question we still about don't that. Have in many ways. Yeah, I saw, and we should talk about that too. Um, so, but this is a problem, right? So, a country, I think, and people should look at America as okay. Slavery was a horrible thing, a black mark on the history of this country, on the founding of this country, and something that it took over a century to solve. Really, all things considered, I mean, you know, you had the Civil War, and then you had the Jim Crow era, and it didn't get solved until literally the 1960s, and then you have all of the after effects of that. Right, so it's a real problem, and it's not something we we should play down and just sort of romanticize American history and say, oh, that was no big deal, or oh, it was solved in the 1960s, and and therefore we should never think about it. And that's an idiotic perspective. Something that is that ingrained in American culture is likely to persist and have continued issues that we need need to be aware of. Right, but that's a different thing from saying groups can't possibly coexist with one another. Um, that there's a fundamental divide between people and that, that there really is no means of communicating and dealing with one another, which is what um, the postmodernists are saying. They're attacking reason at its, as its, at its root. They're saying the entire Enlightenment plan is a farce. It's a joke. There's really no means for people to deal with one another. All there really is in life are power relationships. There are oppressors and oppressed, and that's just the nature of things. And that's very much a tribalistic perspective. That's very much a, you know, that ultimately becomes a collectivistic per perspective because if that's really the case, you gotta you gotta grab your your group and you have to say, well, these people, you know, they're with me. And it's like a gang warfare kind of thing. It's like the Crips and the Bloods, you know, thinking growing up on the street, there's just there's just kill or be killed, and if it's kill or be killed, I'm joining with my group of you know my guys, and we're gonna we're gonna attack the other guys, and then we're just gonna have warring factions. That's, I mean, that happens sometimes, no question about it, right? Look at Somalia, look at all kinds of different countries, look at, you know, Yugos, the former Yugoslavian um, republics and, and all of the fighting they did. Um, look at what's going on in uh, Russia and the former Soviet um, uh, countries. Look throughout the world and you see that constantly. 
But what solves that is the Enlightenment worldview. It's individualism. It's a respect for reason. It's a respect for individual rights. It's a respect for the rule of law, which has to be the ideal. It doesn't mean you meet the ideal all the time. You fall back short of that ideal constantly. And there's all kinds of ways that, yeah, I mean, you know about this, that our government is causing all of this factionalism in society these days. You know, I mean, God, just pick, you know, Occupational licensing laws and what's going on with Uber and different you get you get cab drivers attacking Uber. You get I mean, there's all kinds of policies that create that kind of thing, and it's a really horrible thing. And never mind that race itself was a creation of the state. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, uh, that's absolutely right. So, um, so but but my point ultimately is this: these things are not sewn into the fabric of society or sewn into the nature of man. They are uh, they're definitely you know an attribute. They're, they're, they're a way in which people have divided themselves in the past. But the great thing about the Enlightenment project is that it set the wheels in motion to erase all those things, to make it possible so that King's dictum, judge a man by the content of his character, not the color of his skin, could become a reality. Whether we have measured up to that is one thing. But it's definitely not true that we can't measure up to that. And the only way that you can solve these differences, differences in background, differences in perspective, differences in in ways of uh, life, is to let people be free, let them pursue their own happiness, pursue their own destiny. And by all, you know, in all events, you've got to say, look, if we're going to solve our problems, we have to communicate. We've got to communicate. It's the only way to solve problems, right? Um, either you're communicating with one another. If once communication breaks down, once you think it's fundamentally impossible for me to really talk to another person and that the only real relationship between us is one of oppressor and oppressed, whichever direction that's flowing in, now you get war. Now you get students standing up and saying, I'm not going to listen to anything this guy Murray has to say because I know there's no way he can speak to me. I know everything he says is evil. And the only response that there is, the only rational response, and if I believed this, I would think what the students did was rational. The only rational response is to shout him down and make him go away, because effectively he's like, you know, he's in effect he's invading my campus, and he wants to oppress me. Um, and and that's a view that holds that speech is tantamount to a kind of oppression or a kind kind of force, and we see that on campus now all the time. We see. Um, students saying, I feel threatened by this. And we say professors saying, you know, we need to create these safe spaces for students so they feel safe. This is the language that is used when people are being bullied, when people are actually being attacked in some physical way or something close to that, right? Harassed, intimidated. It's not the language you use in an exchange of intellectual ideas, even if those ideas are crap. Um, if Milo comes to campus and you really think he's just totally full of crap, you got a lot of options. One is don't go to his talk. Another is go to his talk and say, look, I think you're wrong. You know, I think this, this notion that you're, you're peddling here um, is, is incorrect and crazy, and, uh, and I'm going to speak uh, out against you and then, you know, uh, go, uh, do it like that. Use, use speech. Do you suspect that the need or the desire to be protected from... Uh, offensive opinions is driven by just the fact that we are so very wealthy that we can protect ourselves from that uh, kind of oppression. You know, the, the, the Russian phrase, 
Americans don't have real problems, so they have to make them up. <laughs> is uh, you know we're dealing with obesity as a problem, yeah. which is a problem caused by abundance. Yes. And do you do you suspect that that part of it is just like look, I can protect myself yeah. from these odious ideas, and um, maybe I need an alternative explanation for why it is right for me to protect myself from these ideas because dealing with challenging ideas is, is difficult. It yeah. causes dissonance. Yeah. It makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, no question about it. And, and being uncomfortable is sort of just the, in, the, in our nature to yeah. try to avoid. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you're definitely on to something. And, and so this brings in the whole idea of you know, helicopter parenting and, and, and parents being way too overprotective of their kids. And then when you live in, in a society such as ours, as you, as you put it, we, Americans don't have problems, so they have to make up new problems. I mean, it's true. We live in the most abundant and, and wealthiest civilization in the history of mankind. Like, we can't imagine what it would really be like to have real hardship in this country. And I think that there is something to the idea, and especially that a lot of the students that are raising a lot of these concerns are definitely, you know, upper middle class students at elite colleges. Middlebury. Yeah, exactly. Middlebury, Vermont is probably one of the most expensive elitist schools in the whole country. Like, really, that's what you're going to com- complain about? Um, so, yeah, I definitely think that there's something to that. Um, and the idea that uh, that if you've been, in a sense, coddled your whole life, if you've if you've gone to schools that have taught ideas um, and, a, and a particular perspective on life, and then all of a sudden you go to college and you're forced or you're you come in contact with ideas that you've never heard before, um, I, it's very unsettling. I think that there is this idea, and I think there's I mean a whole lot going on here. So a lot of this has to do with the way we do primary education these days. Um, I mean I see this with my own kids in school. This idea that. You know, everybody's opinion is equally valid. You know what? Guess what, kids? That's nonsense. Everybody's opinion is not equally valid. Some opinions are stupid and wrong, and and we have to be willing to tell kids, no, you know what? You're wrong. And I tell my daughter sometimes that they're wrong, and so and I get back to them, oh, you're making me feel bad. And I say, well, I'm sorry, you know, because the truth sometimes hurts. That uh, we we really need to, you know, learn how to deal. <clears throat> excuse me with ideas that run contrary to our own. Imagine if you're a college kid and the first time in your life you confront a worldview that's different from your own. There's a kind of cognitive dissonance that sets in. Um, but that's part of what college is for. College is supposed to challenge your your preconceived ideas. It's supposed to be, um, uh, in some sense, difficult. And, and you've probably had this experience where you, where you try to learn new things and you have people um, challenge your ideas. And it can get it's uncomfortable, right? And sometimes you really have to work through that and think through and, and, and think about other people's perspectives and try to figure out what the truth is. Uh, and I think kids have, these days in college, a lot of students have uh, much less tolerance for that. And uh, especially when they're taught that the ideas that they're confronting are unjust and horrible, immoral, and oppressive, they're not going to be willing to meet them, really think them through and then come up with arguments against them, um, especially when they've been taught that all opinions and all ideas are valid. That's just not true. And philosophically, that's a kind of moral relativism. If we teach kids that all ideas or all values or all ways of life are equally valid, and then somebody comes along and says, you know what, this one's not, 
they're going to fly off the handle and say, well, that's crazy. You know, you're, this is a form of racism. It's a form of, you know, sexism. It's a form of oppression. It's a form of putting down certain groups. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's wrong to say that all cultures and all points of view are exactly the same. They just aren't. But that sounds like the opposite of what happened at Middlebury. Right, or the opposite of what happens on campus all the time. You have people who uh, show up and they say, this opinion is not valid mm-hmm. and we won't, don't want it here. Well, that's true. And I, so I, I mean, that's really, that's a good point. But notice they're reacting to somebody else. They're reacting to a different point of view, right? So the, the, the view that is, uh, I think, um, uh, that's developing on campus is it's, it's, so the first thing I would say is it's not a consistent perspective because that's precisely what's going on. They're essentially saying all views are equivalent except the view that challenges my view. And what it, all, what it amounts to is it's typically multiculturalism is a kind of worldview that holds that all cultures are equally valid except Western culture. It's really an attack on... Western culture and uh, the American founding and the Enlightenment, the values of the Enlightenment. Um, and, uh, and it is that, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for this, but that is the, that's the primary uh, focal point for a lot of the philosophers that have driven this from you know, Rousseau to Marx to the postmodernists. They've all attacked Western culture in one way or another. Uh, and this is a very uh, this is a, a worldview that's very driven by the idea that Western culture, that capitalism, that freedom, that reason, that individual rights are, are inherently oppressive and are especially oppressive to minorities. Um, it's not a I mean, it's not that they have no facts to back them up, as we talked about before. There is slavery. There is such a thing as imperialism. There is such a thing as. Um, you know, Western countries really uh, abusing um, people from other countries, taking them over, uh, et cetera, using force against them, um, you know, imposing their worldview on them. So that's, that's part of the, the view here. But, uh, but yeah, it is self-contradictory, ultimately. Steve Simpson directs legal studies at the Ayn Rand Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.